hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today, we're looking at the second chapter of the book of Philippians. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Before we turn to this passage of Scripture, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word today, as we grapple with the profound truths and the high calling that is presented to us in your word, Father, help us to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves to your lordship, to behave towards one another as you have called us to behave that we would reflect your character, that we would reflect Christ in our lives as servants of yours. And Lord, we confess to you, we are drawn in so many directions that are not what you have for us. That Lord, we are selfish. We are proud. We are so many things that are different than what you call us to. And yet, Lord, we still hear your voice calling. You have redeemed us and saved us from who we were and what we were. You have called us your own. Not only that, but you have given us your very presence in our lives to empower us to hear your voice. And to follow. Lord, help us to hear that voice through these words today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's dig in to this second chapter. Um, just a reminder quickly on the setting. Paul is in prison in Rome writing to the church at Philippi, the church which he, along with Timothy and others, on a previous missionary journey had, had launched. And they have sent Epaphroditus to Paul with a letter, and he's responding, sending them encouragement. And now as we get to the second chapter, we're coming out of Paul talking about his life in Christ, and then Paul encouraging them to live uh, essentially as citizens of heaven. In fact, he says that, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven in verse 27 of chapter 1. Now, as we get to chapter 2, he talks about what our attitudes should be like as we live out our faith in Christ. And he talks about the humility of Christ. There is, in verses 6 through 11, this beautiful, what we believe to be an early Christian hymn expressing some of the deep theological truths about God, about Christ, about well, who we should be, who we are placing our faith in. But then Paul goes on to talk about how we should live our lives and they should, um, in essence, shine out brightly for God, that they should be a light to the world around us, showing them Christ. And then he goes on to close out the chapter by um, basically commending Timothy, who he's planning to send to them at some future point, and also sending back Epaphroditus, who's probably bringing this letter that we're reading right now 
back to the church at Philippi and talking about what he's been through and what an example he is and and what honor should be bestowed upon him because of his service in the kingdom. But we'll get to that as we get to the end of the chapter. But that's that's kind of the lay of the land of what we're looking at today. And I'll tell you the main focus of it is mostly going to be the um, the passages found in 6 through 11. But we're going to cover the whole thing because it's all worthwhile and just some tremendous teaching in here. So let's go ahead and dig in to chapter 2. Here's how it starts. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Now, Paul has asked this series of questions. They're rhetorical questions. They're to get them thinking. They're to point out what should be obvious. And by the way, the answer to all of these is supposed to be a resounding yes. That's what Paul's expecting from the church at Philippi when they hear this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Well, yes. Any comfort from his love? Yes. Any fellowship together in the spirit? Yes. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Yes. Now, if sitting here today, claiming to be a follower of Christ, we can't answer yes to those questions, then we need a heart check. We need to stop and re-examine our relationship with Christ and how that relationship plays out to those around us. Because the right answer for all of those questions is yes. Well, it goes on in verse 2. Then, if all those things are true, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. So he's saying, look, there ought to be unity in the body of Christ, not uniformity, unity, one purpose. That purpose is Christ. That purpose is living out the high calling that he has placed on us, living in obedience to him. How do we do that? Well, by living in the encouragement from belonging to Christ, by taking comfort from his love, by fellowshipping together in the spirit. It's not just, hey, you're my buddy. We get along. We do stuff together. You know, we fish, we barbecue, whatever. No, it's more than that. It is fellowship together in the spirit. It is we are united as brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters in Christ through Christ. The spirit of Christ lives in me. The spirit of Christ lives in you. And therefore we are connected in a way that goes beyond just friendship, just socially getting along. There's a deeper connection there among believers. We are united by one spirit. And our hearts must be tender and compassionate. If we do not have compassion, if our hearts are hard to those around us, Well, I'll just say it. We're not listening to the voice of God in our lives. We are not listening to the promptings of the Spirit. We are not living Christ. 
Christ did some hard stuff. He did some stuff that, you know, on the surface, you may go, that wasn't very compassionate. When he starts kicking over tables, grabs a whip and drives the money changers out of the temple court. That sounds pretty harsh, pretty hard, not very compassionate until you take a step back. And you realize that the area he was clearing out was the only area in the temple that Gentiles, those that were not part of the family of Israel, could come and worship God and learn about God. And that's the part of the temple that had been overrun with corruption. The space that they were given in the design of the temple to come learn of God had been taken away. So what is the compassionate act there? To clear it out. And that's exactly what he did. So sometimes compassion's hard. But our hearts must be tender and we must be compassionate. It's not optional. So again, then in verse 2, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. But he goes on in verse 3, Don't be selfish. Boy, I think we probably ought to camp on that a little bit and just try to figure out what that means. I know it's hard to understand. Yeah, that's sarcasm. It's not hard to understand. Don't be selfish. When we are being selfish, that is the antithesis of what we are called to be. If we are called to be tenderhearted and compassionate, if we are called to be focused on the other more than ourselves, then we can't be focused on ourselves more than anyone else. We can't be selfish, self-centered. If we are the center of organizing our life, then we're not really worshiping God with our life. We're worshiping us with our life. And I don't know about you, but I make a pretty lousy God. I need to worship the real God, not myself. And it goes poorly every time that I live selfishly. And I will admit, I am a sinner. I do fall into selfishness sometimes. So do you. And I suspect you find that it's true for you as well. It always goes poorly when you're being selfish. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Now, this doesn't mean ignore yourself, but it means keep it in check. Don't look out only for your own interest. You know, don't do stuff to impress others. Do the stuff you need to do. Look out for your own interest in the sense that that gives you a platform to move forward from. If you aren't taking care of yourself, you will be in no position to genuinely help others. But don't make the focus of your world you. Take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Well, that sounds great, but he doesn't leave us hanging there to figure out what attitude Christ had or make up our own definition of what attitude Christ had, but he begins to give us this beautiful passage. And again, the scholars think this may have been a a hymn that was used as part of worship in the early church. Um, But this, this beautiful hymn about the attitude of Christ. So let's take a look at that. Here we go. In verse six, it begins. It says, though he was God. Now, who's he talking about? Again, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So here it is. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God. So when he appeared in human form, he was humbling himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, all other names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are some pretty high words, aren't they? Some pretty elaborate discussion of who Christ is and what he did there. Let's go back through there. I want to take it piece by piece and unpack it a little. Though he was God. So if there's any question as to whether Christ was God or not, you know, six part, I hate chopping verses up into part A, part B, part C, because, you know, it's totally out of context. But verse six, part A, the first line of it, though he was God. Kind of ends the discussion right there, doesn't it? For our Jehovah Witness friends out there who want to come and tell you that that Christ wasn't God. Uh, Philippians 2, 6. Though he was God. End of discussion. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. I mean, this is Christ. This is the Word who was there in the beginning, according to John chapter 1. The Word through which the world was created, and all that was created was created through him. Part of the Trinity that God had. And yet, he didn't think of equality with God is something to cling to, to hang on to. Instead, he did something. He gave up his divine privileges. He gave up everything he deserved, everything he had coming, everything that he had every right to claim. And he took on the humble position of a slave. 
And how did he do that? Well, he was born a human being. And when he appeared in that human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He lived his life in humility. The God of all creation, born to a young lady in a stable, wrapped in what they had available and placed where the animals normally feed. That is a huge step down from the God of all creation, isn't it? Why? Why would he do that? Well, two reasons that are really the same reason. He did it out of obedience to God. Says that in verse 8, he humbled himself in obedience to God. Why was it necessary? Why was God calling him to this obedience? For you and for me. Because it was what had to be done to provide salvation to this creation that God loved, this creation that he made to have a relationship with him. This fallen creation that needed a savior, a sinless sacrifice to pay the price for our sin. And so again, picking up in verse eight, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross or on a cross. Understand first century Roman world, the cross was not jewelry. The cross was not something that Christians used to identify themselves, and they surely didn't put on places they were worshiping. A cross was a billboard for the Roman Empire. That's what its function was. When Rome crucified people, they crucified people who were considered to have committed crimes against the Roman Empire. That could be anywhere from inciting full-on rebellion to just disturbing the peace of the Roman Empire. Whatever Rome considered worthy of crucifixion, they'd crucify you. And they didn't do it quietly, and they didn't do it off somewhere in a prison yard. They did it on the street. They did it out on the main thoroughfares leading in and out of town. When Jesus was crucified, when he had to carry that cross beam out there to the place of crucifixion, it was along one of the main roadways coming into Jerusalem. And there was a reason for that. And he was stripped naked, having been beat to a pulp, hung on this cross to die, along with others who were out there for execution. And the message to anyone walking into Jerusalem or any other Roman city where these crucifixions took place would have been, don't go against Rome. Because this is what happens when you do. That was the point of crucifixion for the Romans. God took something that was a symbol of Roman power, that was a symbol of, of punishment, that was a symbol of control, that was a means of death, for a criminal. 
and he used it to redeem humanity for a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. Okay, going on in verse 9, Paul says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. There is nothing that is above Christ. The name above all names. So everything is placed under him. Then we get to verse 10. Verse 10 is a verse that at various points in history and even now it has become popular in some, and you can't see me, but I'm making quotation signs with my fingers, uh, Christian circles, to claim that verse 10 says that everyone will be saved. This is a an idea of a universal salvation, that Christ is the only way to salvation, but everyone will be saved. That's a pleasant idea but it's nonsense. It does not fit with Scripture. Scripture is very blunt in dealing with us. We are sinners in need of a Savior. In John chapter 3, 16, 17, 18, go back and read it. Jesus makes it clear that he came to save the world, to provide that avenue of salvation, because the world already stood condemned. Our sin condemns us, condemns us to hell. Christ came to redeem us, to save us, to change that destination if we will turn to him. God is still a gracious God. He's a, in history, he's been described as a gentleman. He's not going to force salvation on us, but he's going to give us the opportunities to respond to it. So here we are in verse 10. What do we do with this? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean? Does that mean everybody's going to be, was everybody's going to confess that Jesus is Lord? If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, then you shall be saved. Doesn't that mean everybody's going to be saved? No, because what that is talking about is that is at the judgment, at that last day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Isaiah describes it. There's going to come a point where everyone will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. But there's a huge difference between those that willingly acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and make him their Lord, and those who in defeat, facing their eternal separation from God, acknowledge the truth of their reality, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is not an acknowledgement that leads to salvation. That is not a surrendering. That is an admonition of, well, for lack of a better descriptor right now, defeat. 
that's an admonition that I was wrong, but it's too late. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, verse 10, verse 11, everybody's going to get saved. No. I mean, that would be wonderful, but no, that's not what's happening there. But as believers, and this is written to believers to encourage them, the encouragement is, look, we know we know our knees already bow. And we already acknowledge. So let's celebrate that. Let's not just celebrate that. Let's understand that that is the culmination of Christ emptying himself. Gave up his divine privileges, emptied himself to become one of us for our redemption, for our salvation, in obedience to God. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful example of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Remember, this whole passage started with don't be selfish. Don't try to impress. Be humble. Thinking of others better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but the interest of others too. You must have the same attitude Christ Jesus did. And then we have an explanation of his attitude. And I am so thankful for his attitude because without it, I would be lost. There would be no obtainable way of salvation for me or you without Christ having that attitude. Because let's face it, self-interest would not have had Jesus hanging on the cross. Why did he do it? Because he was thinking of us and our benefit, not his. So how should we behave? What should be our priority? Well, having covered that as kind of a foundation for it, Paul goes on now in verse 12 to start talking about, well, how our lives shine, basically. Here's what he says. He says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. You say, how do I know what God wants from me? He gives you the desire to please him. Well, how can I overcome my own desire? How can I under overcome my own sinfulness and please him? Well, it goes on to say, and the power to do what pleases him. Where does that desire and power come from? The spirit of Christ living in you. It is God's indwelling presence, his Holy Spirit in your life. Now, I think it's important that I touch on halfway through verse 12, where he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. That's an important thing to remember there. We do need to work hard in the kingdom of God. We need to work hard for Christ. 
It is not easy to focus on others more than ourselves. It is not easy to overcome our nature. It isn't. It's work. It is work within our own heart. It is work in relationship with others. It is work functioning together as the body of Christ represented in the church. It takes work. It takes effort. But understand that effort is not to gain our salvation. As he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. You see, we don't work to be right with God. We're made right with God, and that motivates us to work. That may sound like splitting hairs, but it is a really important distinction. Because if you're relying on doing enough to please God so that he's happy with you and will save you, you will fail. You cannot do enough to be right with God. The only thing you can do to be right with God is call on him. Call on him. Believe in Christ and receive the forgiveness for your sin that he offers. That's it. And then live in obedience to him as a response to that salvation. But don't start thinking you can do enough and it'll all be good. It won't. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Oh, come on. Why do you have to put that verse in there? But wait, am I complaining? Yeah... I think it's a human tendency. Many of us like to complain, and sometimes we enjoy arguing. You ever met somebody that just enjoys arguing? Uh, You might call them a a contrarian. You say something, and they're just going to pick the opposite just to get you going. Well, that's not what he calls us to, especially in the body of Christ. We're to do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Folks, we should stand out as followers of Christ, not blend in. Well, I don't want them to think I'm weird. You are weird. You have the Spirit of God living in you. That makes you weird compared to a lost and dying world. Be weird in Jesus. Boy, there's a slogan for a church, isn't it? Come join us. Be weird in Jesus. Um, It doesn't mean be a jerk. It doesn't mean just be some sort of a freak. But it does mean be different have a different purpose, a different focus, a different mindset, a different attitude. Have all those things in Christ. 
be different. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud. I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. Paul loves those those athletic metaphors. The idea that his service of Christ is him running the race. And he's calling on the Philippian church to live out their faith and do it consistently. Do it for the long haul so that when it's all said and done and Paul looks back, he can go, hey, I ran that race and it wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't useless. It had a purpose. Verse 17, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life. Pouring it out like a like a liquid offering before God, or another translation says a drink offering before God. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice. And I will share your joy. Paul's saying, look, my own life, I'm rejoicing in my own life Even if I lose it, even if it's like a drink offering poured out, and even the pagans in their offerings to their idols would pour out a drink offering, a liquid offering, what they did with it, it served no purpose. Usually it was wine. It was considered of of some value. And they would pour it out. The Jews in the temple would pour it out on the altar. Well, it's kind of useless once it's poured out, right? But it's dedicated to God. It is set apart. It says, I'm removing this from any usefulness to me. But I'm handing it over to God. And Paul is describing his own life that way. His own life ceasing to be useful to him, but is dedicated to God for God to use as he sees fit. Even if his own life, if he loses his life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. He says, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. I want all of you to share that joy. That joy of knowing what it is to give yourself to God. Instead of being selfish to share together in that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. What a great encouragement. Now we enter into the section of chapter 2 where Paul is uh, giving recommendation or, or commending Timothy and then Epaphroditus. Let's look at verse 19. It says, If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then 
he can cheer me up by telling me how you're getting along. Because so I'm going to send him, he's going to check things out. He can come back and report to me and, and cheer me up. Because, you know, I'm stuck here in Roman prison. And I know that'll be an encouragement. I'm adding that part. But then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. He's saying, look, Timothy's going to be coming and he genuinely, he feels about you like I do. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. So he's he's expressing all of this for, for Timothy, saying, look, Timothy has a heart towards you like I do. The rest of the people I'm with, you know, they may care, but it, it's not like that. They, they just don't have that focus. But Timothy has been with me like a son. He's been by my side in the ministry preaching the good news. Paul's essentially saying, look, when I send Timothy, it's like me being there, but I can't be there. And unlike with the Corinthian church, when we did our study on Corinthians, where Paul had to send, well, Timothy, and gave them instructions as to how they were to treat him, Paul's not having to do that with the Philippian church. The Philippian church loves Paul, and Paul loves them, and he's saying, look, I'm sending Timothy, and he's got the same attitude towards you I do. He feels the same way towards you, and he is solid in his obedience to Christ and his love for the Lord and his proclamation of the gospel. So you do what you know you need to do. Treat him like he's me. And that's his commending of Timothy in the process. Now he moves on in verse 25 to shift the discussion a little. He says, Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Now that's interesting. Paul sometimes does this, but he's using military terminology. Oh, true brother. Okay, he's a true believer, fellow brother in Christ. He is a co-worker. He is working. Not just being, he is working in ministry. And a fellow soldier. That implies that he has had some tough goes of it. Some of it has been a battle for him. And that's not an accidental implication there. It's kind of where Paul's going with a fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you. And he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So here we now know that the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus with some encouragement, some support, um, 
to Paul. But after getting there, at some point, Epaphroditus fell ill, and it was like, gonna die ill. But God saw fit to have mercy on him. And not only was that a mercy on Epaphroditus, it was a mercy on Paul to not have another sorrow added to his plate in this whole process. And Paul is saying, look, I'm going to send him back to you, but let me tell you about him. You know him, you sent him to me, but let me tell you from my perspective who Epaphroditus is. He is a true brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier. He was your messenger, but more. Because he longs to come back because he was very distressed that you heard about his illness, that you were worried about him. He wants to come back and ease your anxiety about him, your concern for him to be set aside. And not only that, you see in here that it's also that if he returns and is able to proclaim how God saw him through what he faced, it will also be an encouragement to the church at Philippi. So there are layers upon layers here of what Paul is saying. Now in verse 28, he says, So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be worried about you. Welcome him with Christian love and with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. In other words, you have sent him as a representative for you, and he has done it. He has done the work at great risk to himself. He was in danger of losing his life for the work of Christ. So when he comes back to you, honor him. Get the idea there's something in that that might apply to us today as far as how we handle our missionaries? Or how we handle those that we encourage and send out in ministry? Maybe we don't call them missionaries, but you know, sometimes we even commission church members to, to go and undertake a task or, or engage in a ministry somewhere. Do we ever view them the way Paul is calling the Philippian church to view Epaphroditus? Do we give them, do we receive them with great joy and give them the honor that people like them deserve? For they risk their lives for the work of Christ. They may even have been at the point of death for doing what we couldn't. Now, we are all called to be missionaries. Let me explain. We are all called to be about the mission of the gospel wherever we are. Some people, God calls to another field, maybe a foreign field, maybe another place in North America, maybe, or wherever you are, if you're listening to this somewhere other than North America. Um, he calls us to so much, but he calls us everywhere we are. Isn't that the commission? Therefore, go and make disciples. And, and literally it translates, therefore, as you are going, 
make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey all I have commanded. Those are the marching orders. That's for every one of us. That's wherever every one of us is. But God does place a special call on the lives of some individuals to go to new places, to go somewhere else, to go to another community, to another part of the world. And maybe he's not calling every one of us in a congregation to do that. But I think maybe there's some guidance here as to what that should look like in the congregation's relationship to those individuals who are called, who go, who risk because we couldn't go. It is okay to, well, in in Baptist life, the phrase we used to use is, I will, see, I will pray and pay so that others may go and serve. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, if God's not calling you to a foreign mission field, that's okay. Do what he's calling you to do. But if he's blessed you with the resources to support financially, and to, in prayer, lift up those that he has called, go for it. Be part of that work. Be like the church at Philippi, sending Epaphroditus and having concern for him while he was there. That's good. But don't let that alone be your obedience to God. Don't let that be all you do understand he's called you as a missionary right where you are. So there's a lot of different aspects to this. There is support for the other. There is work right here. There's a lot in the second chapter, isn't there? Well, this brings us to the end of it. Next time around, we'll be looking at the third chapter. And there's some fun stuff there in the third chapter we'll unpack. So I look forward to going through that with you. I hope you look forward to it as well. Let's again turn to the Lord in prayer as we close out our time together. Join me. Heavenly Father, as we have looked at this passage today, there is so much we see in here that you are calling us to do. So much that speaks to to what is supposed to be the motivation of our heart. Lord, that worship of you, that your gospel, that your call upon our lives would drive us forward. And Father, that we would do it in humility. That your spirit would give us a desire to follow you. And the power to be who you are calling us to be as we follow you. Lord, help us to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to focus on others more than ourselves. That we would not be the focus of our lives, Father, but that you would be the focus of our life. And as we live out this life with you as the focus, that that would play out in our lifting others up. Our building up others in humility. Lord, help us, help us to reflect you. Help us to be who you're calling us to be. 
Help us, like the Philippian church, to be encouraged and reminded by this passage. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.